Right. So looking at that question of how uh, Jesus' life and Jesus' ministry relates to uh, God's plans for this world and everything. They're, they're, I'm being quite selective tonight, and that's that's okay if we go through it quite quickly, because it means we can go back and look at some of those things I'm not being selective about. Uh, I just kind of want to put some things in their context and unpack them a bit. And I, I don't want to do too much, because I think it's worth taking our time on these things. Now, as I say, if we go through it really quickly, and everyone finds it very easy, we can go back over some other stuff. I think it's important, though, let's just do a quick recap, um, especially from last time. So last time we looked at... When the Old Testament ends, so if you have if you have a Bible, you find that there's this, well, actually I don't have one in my Bible, but if someone else has a Bible, and you get to the very end of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, uh, you have, Joseph, are you going to get there before me? I'm try. You're going to have to. I'm in Matthew. Oh, I'm there. <laughs> I don't have this page, unfortunately, but you probably will. In between Malachi and Matthew 1, there's a page I like to call the gutter page. Uh, when it just says the New Testament on it. Mm. And that, there we go, Joseph's got it. The New Testament. Okay. And that page is worth 400 and a bit years. <laughs> so Malachi ends, and then there's 400 years where there's no prophets or anything. I mean, but as we talk about it, we call it the silent years, but it's anything but silent. Very tumultuous. There were wars and everything going on. But nonetheless, you have no nothing added to the Bible. And then you have... The ministry of Jesus. And so last time we kind of looked at um, how the ending of the Old Testament and how the beginning of the New Testament kind of have this bridge. So we talked about this very briefly and we talked about how Malachi ends with kind of three big promises. Uh, sorry, I've, I've, I've included all of them here, yes. So Malachi 3 to 4 closed the Old Testament by promising a coming judgment which will shake up God's people. Malachi 3 prophesies this judgment on the wicked. Bear in mind, it's the wicked within God's people. Uh, Malachi 4, the beginning, prophesies this vindication of the righteous within God's people. And then 5 to 6 prophesy this Elijah-like messenger. Elijah's going to come, Malachi says, and he will turn the hearts of the sons to the fathers and the fathers to the sons, and he will precede the Lord coming to his temple. So, you know, that's interesting. I wonder how that's going to happen. Um and then we talked about how in the silent years, after Malachi was closed, when the Bible was seemingly done, uh, the, the, the kind of the people started to think through these things theologically, and they came up with this concept of the present age, and then the age to come, the world to come, they sometimes said. The present world and the world to come are going to be split by this moment of God breaking in. So the present age is marked by sin, corruption, death, exile. Israel subject to the nations, the wicked prospering, the righteous suffering. The age to come will be marked by a new creation. And part of that new creation is God is going to raise everyone from the grave. Those who are righteous will be given resurrected bodies to enjoy the new creation. Those who are not will be, uh, well, we'll talk about that. Um, the restoration of Israel, all nations flowing to Israel, coming of the Messiah, the forgiveness of sins, kingdom of God and this coming Holy Spirit who's going to transform the world. So that's what we looked at last time. That was kind of where the, the Old Testament finishes. And what we also did last time, as by way of reminder, is we just talked about how this the New Testament begins. You know, All the Gospels begin with this whole thing about how this guy John the Baptist came, he was baptizing people, and it's like, oh, 
right, Niger, the one that Malachi side. Marx just quotes Malachi straight up and says, this was to fulfill this promise. So that's how the New Testament started, beginning with a bang. And the reason I kind of emphasize that is because um, we have a tendency to read the New Testament as a book in its own right. So, you know, we hand out New Testament, the Psalms, Bibles. The problem is that the New Testament itself doesn't want to be read as a book in its own right. It wants to be read as a book that's part of a story, as, as a book that's fulfilling its life. Um, if someone says, do you want to come and watch Space Killers 3? Well, I'm sorry, I've not seen Space Killers 1 and 2. The point is that you might get something from it, but you're not going to get everything from it because you've missed the story thus far. So, Jesus' life. Uh, there's three things I want to focus on. His healings, his denouncements, and his, what well, I couldn't find a pithy way of saying this, so I've just done statements of fulfillment. Um, so we're going to go through these uh, one at a time. I, yeah, I do hope that as we see that these things are quite distinct in Jesus' ministry, why they are, what they're doing. Decides to reappear. Not good. Okay, so first healings. Uh, now, let's say this is kind of similar to what I just said. The problem with talking about Jesus' healings is if you haven't come with the Old Testament background, when you come to the New Testament, what you think is so amazing is there's this guy going around healing people, and that's nice. Now, of course, that is nice. It would be good if you were sick or had a friend who was sick and then wasn't anymore. But I, well, the thing I hope we can draw out tonight is that that isn't the most distinct reason why Jesus goes around healing people. It's not just to do a good thing. And everyone should hopefully have this little page of Bible readings. Um, if you don't, then the readings are here. And and so, but I wonder, could, could we... I was planning for this to be downstairs, and we're no longer in groups. So, um, okay. Could we take a minute to read those Isaiah passages? Just, just note down what strikes you, what comes from it, that you think, oh, that's interesting. doesn't matter if it's particularly relevant or not, just what strikes you. And then once you've read through those, and you've done a bit of thinking about that, then come to the Matthew one and see what's going on there. And then maybe, well, after we've done that, maybe if you guys are a three, Debbie, Lillian, Jeff, Joseph, do you, you can come over and talk to these guys. Uh, do you want to have a big six at the back, or do you just go in couples? Whatever you want to do, uh, I'm not your boss, you can do what you like. Um, but after we've done through those things, why don't we just chat among them about them in groups, um, and yeah, just see what comes out, and uh, yeah, then we'll come back and talk about it. So just take as long as you need to do that. Oh, sorry, I didn't just have you to read. I should also say, because I'm just giving you the passages out of context, both of these Isaiah passages are in the context of God making a promise about there being a new creation. Continue your reading.
What's what strikes you? What why do you think I'm I mean you could just answer the question, why does Joshua want us to even read these? What's the relevance? What do you think is going on? Just really whatever comes out of the passage you think might be relevant. Yes. You can read you can read number six if you want. I I I wrote the that first and I did this next and then I thought number six probably isn't that relevant. Shout out, what do you think is, yeah, what do you talk about? In Isaiah, yeah. 
So I noticed you jumped down a little bit. It's kind of almost like um both passages or vengeance. Yeah. Absolutely. Which is it's it's interesting, isn't it, that it's I mean thirty five Strengthen the feeble hands, say the news of the way, say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, don't fear, God will come. You know, it sounds all kind of very tender, and he'll come with vengeance, the divine retribution. I think this kind of exposes a, a problem on our end that we so kind of dichotomize anger from love. So, I mean, I remember someone um, a few years ago, a, a theologian called uh, Miroslav Volf, talking about how he had come quite comfortable as a theologian with the concept of God being pure love, therefore having no wrath, no anger, and that being much more palatable, until he started studying genocide. And then the notion that God could not be angry became abhorrent to him. He suddenly became like very grateful to be reading the Old Testament where God talks about like his this this taste and displeasure for, for sin. And uh, I do think it's the same thing, isn't it, with, like, with parents? Like, if you're a parent and your child, let's say your child's been bullied at school or whatever, it's because you love so much that you become so angry. So, actually, that, that it is very comforting that God says he's coming with vengeance because it's vengeance on damaging things which spoil his creation, which mar his glory and ultimately <coughs> hurt his people. Yeah, I do think it's quite striking. I mean, especially in 61. 61 just seems so kind of tender. And we're going to talk about this a bit more in a moment because that whole day of the Lord's vengeance will come up again. But yeah, thanks for that, Jamie. So um, it says, um, Year of the Lord's Two hundred and sixty-five times more of God's favour than the grace of His vengeance. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, he's so interesting, graceful. Yeah, that's a good way to put it, Jeff. I like that. There's two things from it. I mean, so I think the, the thing, that the, the reason I've included that in Matthew 11 one is, is as I say, that we shouldn't think of Jesus going around doing healings because he was just doing healings. They are not their own goal. There is a sense in which uh, if he is the Messiah, needs to do those things. Now, I'm not saying he only did it by obligation. You know, I just thought, oh, great, more lepers, you know. But I think there's the point here is that, like, God promises that the new creation is going to break in. And obviously, if new creation's coming in, then, for lack of a better term, forces of darkness, so to speak, are necessarily pushed out. It's like if you turn a light on, the room necessarily gets darker. It doesn't say the same dark with, you know, more light in. Um, when things are in like an antithesis like that, one has to win. So the new creation starts to come in. It starts pushing back those kind of things. So when when Jesus is asked, are you the one who is to come? Should we expect someone else? You know, like, you're in prison. What's going on here? Jesus' response is just very matter-of-factly. 
walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck. It's probably a duck. Um, but it's just interesting that he says, well, of course I am, by, by just reminding them about what Isaiah says. So the reason I'm kind of drawing out this healings thing is to make the point that Jesus choose to, chooses to mark his ministry by doing the things that God prophesied through Isaiah would happen when creation started to be restored. So in terms of how this relates to God's whole plan, what we can say is, even if Jesus didn't say the words, the kingdom of God is at hand, which he did a lot, even if he didn't say it, he said it with his actions because he came and did all the things that was said would happen. So I hope, yeah, I mean, any, any other comments on that before we move on to the next thing, or does that help to kind of fill in what's going on with these kind of healings? Sorry, I've got one other thing actually to say. I'm going to move on. It is interesting when you when you do read other stories about kind of miracle healers, how often they rely on like a an incantation or doing something special. And there's there's loads of stories from this time period, like uh, Philo of Alexandria and Josephus both record stories of, kind of these healers going around. Um, what what's noticeable is that they always, as I say, do something special, whereas Jesus will often just say, "Do you believe?" Or, you know, sometimes he does something strange, like putting putting mud in someone's eye and saying, go and wash. But Jesus' style of strange is all about doing something like mud is not special. Whereas these healers were kind of, you know, know, doing these kind of things that look mystical. Whereas if if you said, oh, yeah, that guy's great. He puts mud in my eyes. That's not the kind of thing you think, wow, he must be a really good healer. So I just find it interesting, really. Jesus just heals from his own power. Okay. Denouncements. That happy, fun topic. We love a good denouncement. So we have a long passage to read, and I wonder if rather than one per, well, rather than us all reading it individually, would some kind soul read for us from Leviticus 14 on the thing? Now uh, if you've read through Leviticus before, you know that there are some bits which you just go, ah. Uh, again, that's a problem on our end because they loved Leviticus in first century Judaism. So if someone would read this for us, that would be fantastic. I'll do it. Thank you, Andrew. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when you enter the land of Canaan, which I'm giving you as your possession, and I put a spreading mold in a house the owner of the house must go and tell the priest, I've seen something that looks like a defiling mold in my house. The priest is to order the house to be emptied before he goes in to examine the mold, so that nothing in the house will be pronounced unclean. After this, the priest is to go in and inspect the house. He's to examine the mold on the walls, and if it has greenish, or reddish depressions that appear to be deeper than the surface of the wall. The priest shall go out the doorway of the house and close it up seven days. On the seventh day, the priest shall return to inspect the house. If the mould is spread on the walls, he is to order that the contaminated stone be torn out and thrown into an unclean place outside the town. 
you must have all the inside walls of the house scraped and the material that is scraped off dumped into an unclean place outside the town. Then they are to take other stones to replace these and take new clay and plaster the house. If the defiling uh, mould reappears in the house after the stones have been torn out and the house scraped and plastered, the priest is to go and examine it. And if the mould has spread in the house, it is a persistent defiling mould. The house is unclean. It must be torn down. Stones, timbers, and all the plaster be taken out of the town in an unclean place. Thanks, Andrew. So, I mean, just as a slight aside, which is always necessary when you go into these kind of passages, obviously, it, that's in one sense sounds like a health and safety check, which, you know, even today, if you have um, black mold in the house, what's it called? Dry, dry rot. There's very few, if you have like a surveyor come and see it, there's very few things they can do, and eventually it does get to a point where they say, right, you're just going to, houses end up getting demolished. And so, in, in one sense, this is kind of purely kind of secular terms, this is just good health and safety. You're living in, a, in an ancient agrarian culture, it's good that someone says, right, this house is just not livable anymore. But it's important that we don't just, it's like people do this with the unclean food laws. You read in Leviticus 11, don't eat this, don't eat that. And people talk about all the health benefits. It's not purely just kind of a physical, um, civil thing. There's also this religious element to it. So the priest is the one who comes and he doesn't declare the house unfit to live in. He declares it unclean. These are religious categories. This is, this is a not fitting for God's people to reside in. These people are supposed to be clean. I don't think it's necessarily one cancelling out the other. I think it's got that civil, secular use as well. But nonetheless, they, they come together. And you think, why on earth are we talking about this? Well, we're supposed to be talking about Jesus' ministry, Joshua. I didn't come here to learn about defiling mould. Well, it, this might be wrong, but lots of theologians of these have kind of drawn this parallel. And I do think it's a good one, which is, you do have this odd question about why does Jesus go to the temple and clear it out at the beginning of his ministry, and no one seems to notice much. Then right at the end of his ministry, people notice this a lot. And not to pick on you, Poe, but Poe did a fantastic job of preaching on um, Jesus' second clearing of the temple a few weeks ago, and I loved it. I'd never noticed the fact that Jesus just occupies the temple, but that was fantastic. Thank you, Poe. But if we look at it from another angle, I think there's this question, why does he do it twice? Now, you read Leviticus, there's a house here, it's got some spreading mold, something that defiles this place. So first the priest comes and he checks it and he says, yeah, right, there is a mold, right. Uh, it's all right. So then he has to come back another time, and if the mold has continued its growth, then the priest says, no, this won't do. Tear apart the bricks, this house is coming down. So this, there's this huge thing in Jesus' ministry about how the temple, which it's important that we get this in context. The temple, standing there on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, is not just how we think about churches, right? So you come into a town, you see an old building, you know, that's the church. That's quite special. It's not just nice architecture. This is the centerpiece of the cultural and religious life of Israel. The 
reason why it was so up, up so high, the reason why it's so decorated is because this building is us. It's not really quite the same, but you know that if someone says uh, England won last night, you, you probably can work out straight away that that means the football team. Even though you just said England, the whole nation didn't compete. In fact, it was a tiny fraction of the nation that competed. But we say England won last night. What we're kind of seeing there is that we can talk about the part as representing the whole because it's such an essential part of our culture. See the point there? Obviously, if you don't like football, then you're going to grudge me saying that. But in the same way that the temple, if you like, could just stand in for the nation as a whole. So Jesus spends a lot of his time in his ministry denouncing the temple and the, the kind of the temple priesthood, the, the staff, if you like. And so he visits it once, he comes in, he clears it out, just like the priest does, comes, clears out some of the bricks. And then he comes back at the end of his ministry, three years later, and he comes in, he does a much bigger clear out. And he says, This house is left to you desolate. Same phrase as what you have in the Greek version of that. Leviticus. So he seems to quote, seemingly quotes from Leviticus 14. Um, now, outside of Jesus' ministry, but 40 years later, we're going to talk about this again in a moment, the temple is destroyed. And it does seem to have this prophetic significance in terms of, think about how Malachi finished. This big shake-up is coming. God is going to come to his temple, and the wicked amongst you are going to be dealt with, right? Then Jesus comes along and spends a lot of time denouncing this people for being wicked and this temple, which is supposed to be the height of their religious life and their devotion to God, instead gets denounced and treated like a house full of mould. I, I think that's very interesting, really, that Jesus makes such a point about that. Um, so, yeah, it's unfit. The house is unfit for living in. It won't do. So what, that, what it says in Leviticus is... Uh, yeah, if it's spread in the house, if it's a persistent defiling mold, the house is unclean. It must be torn down, stones, timbers, and all the plaster, and taken out of the town to an unclean place. Every brick's got to come down. So, um, yeah, I think that's interesting to note, really, that Jesus makes a point of that. Similar, similar, similarly, 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 again. Think about that prophecy at the end of the Old Testament. Imagine you're a, you're a Jew in the first century, reading through your Bible. You're doing your Bible in your one year with. I'm trying to think of a, a great version of Nicky Gumbel. Um, Nicky Gumstein. You're reading your Bible in your one year with him, and um, and you get to the end of Malachi, and the point that it ends on is God is going to come and He's going to yeah, deal with His people. Rights will be rewarded, the wicked will be destroyed. You get that, and then okay, now the New Testament's been written now, you've got Matthew, you start to open it, you read Matthew. And it's interesting how much Jesus, meek and mild, as we know, spends so much of his time saying, Woe, woe to you, Bethsaida, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, scribes, woe to you, Pharisees, woe to you who do this, woe to you who believe, who say this and then do this, woe to you who. Act the part and don't believe in your heart. All these kind of things. A lot of woes. Um, and a lot of this generation will. So uh, the judgment of all the prophets will land on this generation, Jesus says, for instance. Uh, this generation will 
don't have any other quotes off the top of my head, but this is a phrase that appears seven times in Matthew's Gospel, nine times in Luke's, every time attached to some at the end of a kind of a um, tirade against them. So again, it's just really interesting that Jesus spends so much time doing this, and the Old Testament prophets say that there's going to be this shake-up. The, the, the um, wheat will be separated from the chaff. In fact, I, I don't know why I'm only thinking of this now, but John the Baptist starts off Jesus' ministry, and what he says is, there's this coming one coming. He's standing amongst you now, and he has the threshing rod in his hand, and his job when he comes is he's going to separate the wheat from the chaff. The chaff is going to be burned, and the wheat is going to be sorted. So the one thing that John kind of says to the people, get ready for the Messiah because the wicked amongst you are going to be dealt with and the righteous are going to be rewarded. And Jesus comes along and he spends a lot of time doing just that. He goes, notice that when Jesus goes to the poor or goes to the oppressed or goes to people who he considers to be in the right, doesn't just kind of say, um, doesn't just heal them all. He almost always attaches a statement of blessing to them. So positive kind of lifting them up not just the denouncing those who are doing it wrong. We can spend a lot of time on these passages. Um, hopefully we won't. Um, but if, if we just look at, look at, turn back to Isaiah 61. Okay. Now this is, thankfully Jamie's already kind of highlighted this for us. But verse 2 says, Proclaim the Lord's, the year of the Lord's favour and the day of the vengeance of our God. Can someone just... Turn to Luke chapter 4. Find Jesus' Nazareth manifesto, as we like to call it. So it's Luke chapter 4, verse 16. If someone could just read verse 16 to 19 for us, that would be really helpful. Luke 4, 16 to 19. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up on the, on the Sabbath day. He went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read. This roll the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And rolling it, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, and the year of the Lord's favour. End quote. So what has either Jesus not included, or Luke's retelling of what Jesus did? short yeah so you're kind of thinking how well, i know that passage i know it really well you know we read it all the time when i was growing up in synagogue and reading this and about all your all your fellow jews have come to believe this person's the messiah so you're reading this gospel and you think how oh, where's the rest <coughs> strange you go on a few chapters and you're working your way through luke's gospel you want to find out more and you get to luke chapter 21 and this is the bit where Jesus has just come out of the temple for the second time. And he has denounced it. And his disciples come and tell him, oh, wow, look at this temple. So Luke 21, verse 5, some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings. Jesus said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left one here, left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. He's, they said, look at this place. And he says, yeah, well, what about it? It's all going to be destroyed. And then he just begins. They say, when is this going to happen? So Jesus begins to answer when this is going to happen. He tells them the kind of things that are going to take place. There's going to be wars. There's going to be rumors of wars. There's going to be tumults. There's going to be earthquakes. 
There's going to be nation rising against nation. There's going to be famines in places. There's going to be sickness and pestilence. Um, he, t- he kind of goes through this list of things that are going to happen. And in verse 20, he says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, you know that its desolations come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and those who are inside the city depart. Let not those who are in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. So you've got the end of that Isaiah 61 quote. It's all there in Jesus' ministry. Right. Um, now, if I just get to the end of this passage, I'm not going to read through all of it. I would encourage you to do that. But verse 33, verse 32, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all this has taken place. I, I, that is one of the most misread verses in the New Testament. Um, the amount of people who say, oh, yes, but this generation could mean like this race of people or this kind of people. It just doesn't. It means the generation that's alive at the moment. Jesus says these things are going to happen in 40 years. Lo and behold, they do. All the things he lists. But the point that I'm trying to make more than just kind of grinding a theological axe is that um, you have this Isaiah prophecy about this one who's going to come, and when he comes, there's going to be this favour of the Lord, but also the days of vengeance. There's going to be these denouncements. And in Jesus' ministry, you see him doing this, and it gets to this, I think Luke 21 is like this capstone of denouncement. It gets to this kind of final point where he just gives this tirade, this is, this is just coming down. This is not fit for purpose. This is coming down. This is the days of vengeance that Isaiah prophesied. Um, I put Matthew 24 there. Luke 21, Matthew 24 are the same prophecy, same setting, exactly the same. Um, it's, as I say, the reason why I'm making this point is because these are so often misread. Matthew 24, Luke 21 are not about the end of the world. They are, they are about the end of a world, the world that the people at this time knew. Um, but yeah, I mean, I remember that there's a, a series of um, almost like graphic novels of the Bible called the Word for Word Bible comic book. They're really good most of the time. The guy who's done it has put so much research into it. I remember grabbing his uh, copy of the Gospel, and when Jesus does this and he talks about wars and rumors of wars and nation rising up against nation, it had a picture in a Nazi outfit and it had someone wearing a British Army outfit and a tank. I think Jesus is prophesying events that are happening in the next 40 years. He is not talking about wars in our lifetime or anything. That's, you have to go far beyond the text to do that. So as I say, sorry, it's an axe to grind, but it's just one of those things where I think, can we just take Jesus' words seriously? Like he says this will all happen within a generation. Can we just believe him, please? Anyway, I'll leave that one for now. How do you know that was such a... Well, because everything he said would happen did, and he said it, he gave a time frame for when it would happen, and it did. So the, the point is that um, if if Jesus didn't give a time frame, well, there's a, there's a okay, there's a few things. The question that he's asked is when is this going to happen? So he's just looked at the temple. He said this is all going to be shut down. The question that he's asked is when is this going to happen? He answers that question by saying the events that are going to precede it, and then finishes by saying this will all happen within a generation, right? So there's just there's no space in the passage for Jesus to be talking about something that kind of goes far beyond. 
It's not like Jesus has sat with his disciples and says, let me tell you how the world's going to end in a few thousand years. It's, it's got a context, the conversation, and Jesus puts a kind of a bookend on it by saying when it's going to happen. Um, so, as I say, there's just nothing in the passage. The only thing that would lead you to take the passage out of its context and read it as though it's kind of for us and what we're seeing in our lifetime, I think is this desire. So we know that the Bible's written for us, but it's not written to us. So not all of its concerns are our concerns. So like I said on Sunday, if you heard me preaching Odin yesterday, we read in Exodus, God says to his people, don't boil a goat in its mother's milk. Most Christians will say, okay, Lord, I won't. Because that's in a context that that meant something to Israel. Okay, wow, whatever, we, we, we don't necessarily know, we have theories, but whatever that meant to Israel was significant enough that God had to say to them, don't do this practice. Whereas we just think, well, why would you be boiling a goat in its mother's milk? Or, or, or what's wrong with that? So it's just the point that it's not written to us, but it is written for us. So there's something to grasp from it. So that, again, with this, Jesus is having a conversation with his disciples. And again, he keeps saying to them, this is what's going to happen to you. You're going to be dragged in. You're going to be put on trial. Stand firm. Now I can, I can read that and I can say, okay, well, if Jesus could say to these people in this context, stand firm, I can draw from that an application to my own life. I can stand firm in whatever happens. But that doesn't mean that what Jesus is talking about is my situation. See what I mean? So there's nothing in the passage that would take us into our context. And the only thing that would is a desire to make it all about us. And, uh, yeah. I mean, this is the thing that always frustrates me. That so many thousands of generations of reading the Bible, yet there's always... Bible teachers in every generation saying, oh, the, the, these things, these things are for us. And so I saw these exact same things 200 years ago. And people back then were saying, these things are for us. And so, anyway. Yes. And I find it very frustrating because the reason why Jesus could say, you will hear wars and rumors of wars, and that's a distinct sign that something big is going on, is because this is the time of what we call the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome. The Roman Empire had spread so much that there was no war. So if Jesus says there's going to be war, that's a big deal. In our world, if we hear of wars and rumors of wars, so what? When was the last time we weren't at war? There's always going wars going on in the world. So people look at these signs as though they're distinct in our time, not seeing that they were distinct in Jesus' time. And even when you go through the book of Acts, go through the book of Acts and notice how many times there's a famine, how many times there's an earthquake. Like, these things are going on quite a lot in this period. Um, yeah, we get earthquakes every now and again now. We get famines. But it's kind of the usual spread. Whereas this time that Jesus prophesies is distinct for kind of everything that's happening. So, yeah. Anything else on this one? Vengeance is um, God's just yeah. yeah, especially in the context of thinking about his people, right? So I go to the shop, there's a child misbehaving. I don't go and tell that child off. It'd be wrong if I did. But 
and Evangeline is having a tantrum, I do. And it's not to say that, you know, it'd be wrong for God to punish those who weren't people, because obviously everyone is God's people, but there's a distinct sense in which God's covenant people had agreed to be his people, follow his ways, be in a relationship with him. So his vengeance comes not just from him having a bad temper, but from, well, I'm, you're being unfaithful to your side, but me being faithful to mine means... Yes, that's the thing that the prophets always stress. It's like, how many chances is God giving you guys? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Which is the point Jesus makes. He says, you've ignored all the prophets' voices. Now I'm here, and you're not listening to me either. God has sent the best of the best, and even he got ignored. the punishment being so strong today. Okay, so the denouncements, they, the reason why they take such a prominent role in the gospel is again because of uh, promises of God bringing in this, all this as I say, eschatological plan, this plan that is about how we're going to get to God's end goal. Okay, last thing, the statements of fulfillment, and there's loads we could have chosen, I've just picked two. Just to make the point that Jesus goes around saying that he is significant because he's bringing a story to its completion. So there's a um, Matthew five seventeen uh, says this on the, in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, "Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfil them." But truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not a yota nor a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So, again, that's quite, it's quite um, drastic, that's not the right word. Imagine if you heard some bloke saying that. The law, the centrepiece, you know, the thing that makes Israel Israel, we have the law. He says, I've, I've come along, and I'm not coming along to get rid of it, I'm coming to bring it to its completion. Okay. Who does this guy think he is? And then secondarily, does someone just want to read Matthew 12, 28? Well, actually, maybe let's start a few verses earlier than that. Um, verse 22, maybe? 12, verse 22 to 28. And they brought him a demon possessed man who was blind and mute. <laughs> Jesus healed him, but he could both talk and see. The people were astonished and said, Could this be the son of David? When the Pharisees heard this, they said, It's only by Beelzebub, prince of demons, this fellow drives out demons. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Is the kingdom divided against itself will be ruined? Every city or house divided <coughs> against itself will not stand. Satan drives out Satan, who is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? If I drive out demons by reason, by whom do your people drive out? How then do your judges? If I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, my kingdom is not. Yeah. 
this kind of relates to the healing thing, but Jesus' point there is, I'm doing these things. If I'm getting rid of demons, that tells you that I'm fulfilling these promises of the kingdom of God coming. That you kind of obviously we could have gone for the the very basic phrase where Jesus just says, "Repent, the time is at hand, the time has come, the kingdom is at hand." Sorry. So the the point there is that Jesus goes around self consciously saying, "I'm here to bring this story to its next phase." Which is why I just find it so frustrating. I mean, C.S. Lewis makes such a good point about this. I just find it so frustrating when people talk about Jesus being a great moral teacher. It's like he didn't see himself as being a great moral teacher. He saw himself as a story completer. He's either who he says he is, or he is delusional. Or he's a lie. That was the other option. Um, yeah. Okay. I don't think we'll do this one, because we can take way too long on this. Um, Yes. How many years later was the temple destroyed? So Jesus prophesied against it in either 30 AD or 33 AD, probably 33 AD. The Romans invaded um, Judah in 66 AD. So the, so the, the war kind of started in ribs and drabs in 64. Uh, it was invaded in 66. 68, the siege began, and then in 70 AD, the temple was actually taken down and destroyed. Yeah. Well, no, less than less than 40. Yeah. It's the one generation. It's the one generation. Generation, a generation in scripture almost always tends to be a period of 40 years. The wilderness generation, for instance. How long are they in the wilderness? 40 years. So go on. Um, so, yeah, there we go. Okay. Uh, we're, we're not going to do this bit because it will take too long and it's way too technical. Um, so we can always circle back if we need to. But um, any questions or comments or people want to go to the toilet or have a drink before we move on? Where, what do we think? Now forever hold your peas. Right, consider your peas held. Um, let's move on. So Jesus' death, brackets and resurrection. Just include the brackets in your mind, if you will. Okay. So um I've put this on a handout. Jesus' death and subsequent resurrection caused the need to completely reassess God's eschatological plan. Now, as I say, that phrase eschatological plan just means the plan for the end, and how we're going to get there. Um, now, it is really important that we remember that we are talking about Jesus' death and resurrection, which is why this tomb is brilliant. Empty tomb, you can see the cross on it. If there was no resurrection, then Jesus is, well, there would be no Christianity, because the death would just be pure depression. But there is no resurrection without the cross, so we need to consider both. But one of the things we talked about at the very beginning was that you had in this time this very kind of neat understanding that the present age is marked by these things. Sin, corruption, death, exile, Israel subject to the nations, the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer. And then you had that very neat, something big happens. And then what we'll bring in is a new creation, resurrection, the restoration of Israel, all nations flowing to Israel, the coming of the Messiah, the forgiveness of sins, the kingdom of God and the Holy Spirit. Why some are in bold, I will talk about in a moment. The problem is that 
that kind of neat antithesis is made a bit squiffy. I was going to put squiffy on the handout, but I thought it's just not a, a formal enough word to include it on something I'm going to print. So I did slightly blurry, but I should have put squiffy. It's made squiffy by the coming Messiah. So there we go. The coming Messiah dying, bringing the forgiveness of sins, um, and then rising to life, launching the resurrection. Now that's squiffy because. As I've also said in the handout, there was no understanding of an individual coming back from the dead. That's not what the day of resurrection is about. The day of resurrection is not about one person coming to life again. This is about everyone who is dead coming to life again because God is restoring all of creation and so dead things come out of the ground. So the coming Messiah, that's an age to come thing, being subject to a present age thing, to bring about an age-to-come thing which is kind of half-cocked just kind of creates this, huh? Now, we're going to talk about this next. That's why we talk about the already and the not yet. And I mean, Paul is just so helpful on this. Paul spends so much time as a good, faithful, Torah-believing Jew thinking a lot about how this makes sense. And there's a lot of good things to take from his writings. but. I think the point just to make tonight really is that I hope we can see how this makes things complicated. And I think that's the main thing I want to draw out just in pointing out Jesus' death. And again, this is one of those things where so often in our theology, we just treat the New Testament as a standalone book. So almost always Christianity is talked about uh, Jesus died in your place. Very not to do with the resurrection. Oh, and he also came back from that. Now, I don't have any problem with saying that Jesus died in the place of sinners. Of course, that's absolutely fine. Um, I do have an issue if we make Jesus' death on the cross more important than his resurrection. Uh, but I think that the problem here is that we make it all very, very neat. So it's like, well, his first followers should have just gathered that his dying on the cross and his coming back from the dead would have achieved what it did. And, you know, you, person who doesn't know about Christianity, why isn't this just so simple to you? He died and then he came back from the dead. You know, it's like, these things are complicated because they go back to this story, which we thought was so neat, then didn't end up so neat. Have I, have I made the case enough to say this is <laughs> complex? No. Let me continue then, Dick. No, no. <laughs> Yes. It's not the problem not about presenting Jesus changed. And complex But I think I think when I say complex, I don't just mean tough to get your head around. I mean within the Bible's own story, the kind of expectations that you would have when you get to this point of the story, if you're reading the gospels through the lens of the Old Testament story, Jesus' death and resurrection, as much as I believe that they are fulfilling the Bible story. Don't do it in what I might consider to be the cleanest way or the most straightforward way. It would be a lot more straightforward if Jesus dies, 
And then as he raises from the dead, everyone else who's died also comes back from the dead. That at that moment, the general judgment happens that people who are righteous are given. In terms of their expectation. Well, I don't just mean, because I, I, I don't think it's a problem on their end. I think it's, as I say, there is no, there is no concept in the Old Testament of a guy coming back from the dead apart from the day of resurrection. So I'm, I'm saying that, I'm not saying that Jesus did anything wrong, I'm just saying that he breaks the categories. He does something new, wholly new and different. So it's just to say that, that we, we should put no blame or kind of think, oh, you guys didn't get the whole thing, on, on why people and Jesus, they thought it was going to be so neat like this. Um, the only reason why we go back to the Old Testament now and we go, okay, right, that's what's going on, is because we've seen find it up. Right? Yes? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I would say yes, but really you can only make sense of it from retrospective lenses. So um, this, I really hope this isn't too complicated. Give me multiple attempts to unpack this. Um, <coughs> if you read Isaiah particularly, get to Isaiah 53, I'm sure many people are familiar with Isaiah 53, suffering servant who dies in the place of many, I ask you, who is the servant, you say? Okay. Who does Isaiah say the servant is? Israel. In Isaiah, it says, Israel is my servant, right? So uh, you read Exodus 4. Moses goes to the Pharaoh in Egypt and he says, God says, Israel is my son, let him go. The prophets at multiple times talk about um, the resurrection of the son of God, meaning Israel being resurrected. Okay. When you get to Matthew, you open up Matthew, the first page you read is a genealogy. You think this is really boring. Um, I don't need to know this list of names, but it's telling you about the history of Israel. Then you read this story about uh, this wicked place with a wicked ruler, and he's killing the baby boys. But then this one person escapes, and then they cross through water, and then they come into this wilderness where they're tempted. Then they come out the other side, and then they have a law to deliver. You know, it's all these kind of things. You realize, oh, the story of Israel is being retold again. The Exodus, the Red Sea crossing, the wilderness wandering, the law at Sinai, all these things, except Jesus is Israel. Um, again, in Galatians 3, Paul talks about the promise to Abraham, and he says, this is about Jesus. <coughs> so if you say, who is, Isaiah, who is the servant in Isaiah? Israel. Then you say, who is Israel? Jesus. Jesus is the embodiment in one person of Israel. So now we can go back and we say, <coughs> the resurrection of the Son of God was talking about Oh, the resurrection of the Son of God. You see what I mean? So by prophesying the, the resurrection of Israel, we are seeing prophecies of the resurrection of Jesus. 
I, I I don't expect everyone to hear that and just go, that makes perfect sense. I think it takes some wrapping your head around, but I think that's the only way we can really make sense of the data. And that's certainly, I think, the way that the gospel writers see it. Because, I mean, they are, they are bending over backwards to make this point that if you want to know who Israel is, it's Jesus. Israel. Why not mankind? What's time? <laughs> okay. Um, okay, so the story of mankind and the story of Israel aren't two separate stories in the Bible. Um, God has a plan to restore all of mankind, or all of creation, with mankind being the pinnacle of creation, right? So, um, and I'm not going to think of an analogy quick enough that's good enough, so I won't try. Um, but so God cares about all creation, and if humanity is the peak of that creation, then if He cares all about that creation and restoring all of it, that involves all of humanity. The first uh, eleven chapters of Genesis talk about this humanity as a whole going further and further and further away from God. Then you turn to Genesis chapter twelve, and you get Abraham and the call of Abraham and God making a covenant with him. And the thing he says in Genesis 12 is, through you, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. So Israel isn't taken from the other nations to be, well, I care about these ones and they can go their own way. The plan from the very beginning is that this is God's means of how the world is going to be blessed. So if you, if you care about Israel, you care about mankind, in other words, in, the, in that biblical story. So... Again, in Isaiah, you've got this promise of the, of the servant, who Isaiah says is Israel. And then it says that this servant is going to restore Israel so that Israel can restore people at the ends of the, at, to the ends of the earth. Right? So the whole thing is that um, if everything went smoothly, it would be all mankind loving and serving God from the beginning. If everything went secondarily smoothly, it would be that Israel would God's people be totally faithful and then minister and bless all those other nations. What actually happened is mankind turned from God, so God called Israel, and then Israel turned from God. So first God called Israel back to himself so that they could get on with their mission. See the point? Um, so what happens throughout that story is that as Israel become more and more unfaithful, more and more of Israel get cut off. So Abraham has two sons. Only one of them is relevant to God's purposes. And then he goes on, and there's 12 tribes, but then one of them is unfaithful, and they're completely cut off. And then they split, and those lots are unfaithful, and they get cut off. And you end up with just this small group of people. And Jesus comes to them, and most of them are unfaithful, and they get cut off. But this tiny little, the Bible, the biblical word is remnant, they accept Jesus. And they, they're interested in God's plans for them. They go out into the world, and lots of people who were formerly not in Israel join Israel because they want to take seriously God's, uh, God's plan. So Israel continues to grow and grow and grow and grow. There's, I mean, this is really important. It's not that God used to be concerned with Israel, and now he's concerned with the church. There's no, there's no time when there is a replacement. What, what instead is happening is that they are being cut off by their unbelief. And what's left goes and tells other people and they join in so that the group expands. I've used the analogy before. If you have a family, a number of kids, let's say one of the kids grows up and is unfaithful or, or unfaithful is not really the right word of the family. Um, 
reject the family, are uninterested, they are emancipated or whatever, they, they cut themselves off from the family, and then it happens again. Now this, this couple who had three kids now only have one. Then they decide to adopt a few kids, and they adopt three kids. They've not replaced those kids or become a new family. It's the same family, but some have been cut off and some new ones have been brought in. So th- this is why in Galatians 6, Paul is talking about the church. And he said how the promise to Gentiles, uh, to Gentiles is fulfilling the promise of Abraham. And he says, so if you are in Christ, you are Abraham's offspring. Right. And then at the end of the book, he says he calls this group of people, the church, the Israel of God. He's not saying, well, you used to be interested in Israel. Now he's interested in the church. He's saying that Israel has undergone a seismic shift. A great multitude of them cut themselves off, but a new multitude has been brought in. See the, the point there? So um, it is all about Israel because God is interested in all mankind. That's a, a much longer answer than I planned on giving. But, uh, okay. <laughs> um, okay. Let's, let's, we've got how many? We've got 12 minutes. Let's, let's finish off. We can circle back on anything that people want to circle back on, but for the sake of this, let's, let's go in. So the reason I put these in bold is... Um, in Jesus' death and resurrection from the cross, these are the age-to-come things which have kind of been dealt with, or at least touched on. So the coming of the Messiah happens in Jesus' ministry. Uh, the, king, the kingdom of God comes through him. We've seen the passages that talk about that. And then his death brings in the forgiveness of sins, but his resurrection, resurrection and the new creation aren't like two separate things. They are old hands, you know, the resurrection happens because the new creation happens. Um, so these things all seem to happen. The Holy Spirit's not been poured out. There doesn't seem to be a restoration of Israel yet. There doesn't seem to be all nations flowing in yet. But this is in a context of still the world is marked by sin, corruption, death, exile, those are all subject to nations, and the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer. When Jesus comes back from the dead, People are still terrible. People are still dying. Israel is still under Roman rule. People who are bad are still doing really well, and people who aren't are not doing so well. So you kind of have this question of, like, what is going on here? Now, particularly on the point we were talking about earlier with the day of resurrection, this is where Paul is really, really helpful. Uh, And as I say, we're going to talk a lot more about Paul's theology and how it all works next time, but I think this is a really helpful point. If you just have the Old Testament, all you have is this one day of resurrection, right? Just one event. Now, what I think is really important that we don't do is say, okay, well, there is still a coming day of resurrection, but there's also been another day of resurrection, right? So Jesus rose back from the dead, and in a few hundred thousand, we don't know how long, it would be controversial to say, in another few hundred thousand years, there's the next resurrection. That's not what's going on either. If we could just turn to 1 Corinthians 15, a passage that's so good that it made it into Harry Potter. (laughs) And you have all these Harry Potter fans who think that J.K. Rowling came up with such a profound phrase like the last enemy to be defeated is death. And you think, you're just reading scripture. Um, So I love this passage, so I'm definitely going to go further than what I've put on the handout. I'm going to read down to verse 26, because, I mean, it's just, 
So good. So it says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits, remember that word, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. As by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. For each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to the, uh, the kingdom to God the Father, having destroyed every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Amen. What a passage. Um, the phrase I want to draw out there is this language of first fruits. So we've got a harvest, fields already. First fruits was the, the tiny little batch you take to kind of check the quality. And then later on, you go back and you harvest the rest of the field. But this is really important. In that metaphor, farmers would not consider it two harvests. You know, well, first we did the first fruits harvest, and then we did the other harvest. The first fruits <laughs> is just the first stage of the one harvest event, right? So when Paul talks about the language of the day of resurrection and Jesus' resurrection of the dead as the day of first fruits, he's not saying there's two de- there's two days of resurrection. Jesus came first, and then the second one's later. He's saying the one day of resurrection, the one resurrection harvest, if you like, has broken into the present age with this first fruits. So the point is, on the, on the actual day of resurrection, when we do experience that, it's, we are experiencing what God already began 2,000 years ago. Which, in other words, is a guarantee that Christians die knowing we'll be back. Yeah. So my dad's gravestone has on it, you know, Jeremy Clark, blah 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 blah. Jesus' words, "I'm the resurrection and the life." Do you believe this? And Dad wanted that as his gravestone because he was firmly convinced, going into the ground, but I won't stay there. The reason he can have that confidence is because the day of resurrection's already begun. The guy came back from the dead. First fruits, full harvest. See the right there. So. Jesus' life, death, resurrection, his ministry force us to do something biblical story, the eschatological plan of God. And as I say, next time we're going to unpack what it forces us to do with it. But I think I think it's uh, I think it's exciting at least. I like the point of these kind of things. I hope you enjoy getting into the nerdiness with me. Let's do a quick uh, oh actually. No, I just did the <laughs> because I complete this. There we go, guys. <laughs> the. Okay. Well, anyway, no recap tonight. You'll just have to remember. Yeah, we've got, we got six minutes. I mean, if we want to finish there, I understand. I feel like I've done a big download. Um, but if there are any questions or comments that you want to unpack more, we can do that. Absolutely. So, I mean, I, and this is a separate, uh, well, it's not that separate. It's, it's kind of separate. Um, Pentecost was the festival of first fruits, right? 
Um, so I'm definitely stealing from myself when we do come to talk about Pentecost, but that's fine. Um, we all need a reminder sometimes. Um, yeah, when we talk about Pentecost now, it's like, Andrew, what is Pentecost about? <laughs> no, no, I'm not, I'm not trying to trick you. I'm just asking, what is Pentecost about? Like. <laughs> okay, Joseph. Pardon? No, no, don't give me the, the Holy Spirit. Thank you, the Holy Spirit coming, right? So if someone says, what's, what's, what do Christians believe about Pentecost? Say, oh, it's the day that the Holy Spirit came. But when you're reading an act and it says they were all gathered for Pentecost, well, they weren't gathering to commemorate an event that hadn't happened yet, right? The reason why they're gathering is because Pentecost is the festival of first fruits, right? And uh, you read in Romans about the Holy Spirit, and what does Paul describe it as? He's talking about how uh, all creation is going to be transformed, and we're waiting for it, and the creation is longing. So the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. But we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly. So the point there is, the Holy Spirit is the means by which God is going to transform all of creation. So again, this is the same kind of thing there. The prophets say when the Holy Spirit comes, creation gets changed. Holy Spirit comes... Yes, there is this huge change. There's this gathering together of people. There's this uh, building this new humanity. But it's not like you know, suddenly the infant mortality rate drops or trees stop getting diseases or thorns and thistles retract or whatever. So there's a sense in which this kind of partial, that the harvest doesn't all come at once. So Paul refers to the fact that we've been given the spirit and yet creation is still longing be set free from its futility as we've got the first fruits. So I just think that's so interesting that God decided to pour out the spirit on his people on the festival of first fruits. Um, but I suppose, how is that relevant to the resurrection? Well, because the spirit comes to transform all creation and resurrection is transforming creation. Um, yeah. As with all of these things, there's already, there's always more rabbit holes we could go down. But, um, so that's, Three minutes. I don't understand this. You know, you talk about the suffering servant, the Isaiah passage. I'll get the bit about, you know, in the Old Testament, Israel is God's son. But what would they have understood about the passage that appears to apply to a person? Yeah. Because, you know, the thing about him being bigger than all men for you and all that stuff. What would they have understood? So don't hear me as saying this isn't really about Jesus. We no, make no, it about no, Jesus. No, I understand that. I, but what would what would the original readers interpreted that as meaning? Well, would they have thought that was going to be the Messiah? Unfortunately, we don't know. <laughs> what we do know is that they struggled with it because if you think about Philip and Ethiopian eunuch, Ethiopian eunuch sat in his carriage reading Isaiah fifty three. Cannot make sense of this. And Philip says, Well, let me tell you about what's happened with Jesus. I, I, maybe he was just a one off. The Bible can be a confusing book, but uh, just interesting. I mean, it's interesting that now, if you go to, I mean, don't you see these missionaries who go to Israel and teach Jews about Jesus? Isaiah 53 is called the Forbidden Passage. 
not taught in synagogues. And I think that's probably because of its explanatory power that prior to Jesus, you might have read it and thought, what the heck's going on here? After Jesus, it's like, oh my goodness, that clear. It's just right there in front of our eyes. So they wouldn't have been able to envisage a Messiah that... This is, we, have no, we have no reference in any pre-Christian Jewish work about a notion of a suffering Messiah. Joseph, all right, we're going to have to be very brief, Joseph. So Isaiah 53, is that really, like, sort of discounted a bit? Uh, this is maybe a bit complicated. You have to bear in mind that the Christian church hasn't always done themselves any favours with their treatment of Jews. So we went through a, a very bad period in the Middle Ages of severe anti-Semitism, which the church has to repent for, um, which has damaged significantly our, our mission. And so any, it doesn't, I mean, it didn't start then. I mean, it's also not just one-sided. In the 300s, we have documents of Jews um, cursing and um, calling denouncements on Christians. So it's not like it's just entirely, but the church doesn't have it. Um, and so what it's meant is that there's a context amongst Jews often, especially in synagogue settings, of Use amongst Christians, we avoid it. I'm making this very, very simple for the sake of time. But so, Isaiah 53 is the missionary's favourite passage, so we forbid the teaching of that passage. Can I ask one question? It's not about what you spoke about. Yeah. When you read that bit of Matthew, in this age of the age to come <laughs> nice easy question to end on no you cra- you carry on I said, we probably think that, oh, the unforgivable sin is not forgiven in Jesus. Mm. Jesus says, I'll forgive you. But you don't believe in Jesus. You don't go to heaven, you don't have to. Mm. But we, we also read there, didn't we, in, in Isaiah, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me. He's anointed. God is anointed. As it says in Timothy, that is the Lord's presence. Yeah. The spirit is. Upon Jesus. Yeah. So they're saying, you, um, you said I drive out demons by Satan. They're not the Holy Spirit, because he's driving them out by, by the Holy Spirit. Mm. So if you say that I'm not doing it by the Holy Spirit, really, you're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And you're not saying, and you're not recognizing. Divinity. Yeah. I, I think um, I hear the I hear the, the point. I think it's so in a way the unforgivable sin is not linked in Jesus being the Holy Spirit. I I think this is a very complicated. I I've, I've 
preached on this a few months ago, and I remember saying basically, I don't remember, I, I don't remember exactly what I said, but something on the lines of, I don't feel like I can adequately tell you what this passage does mean, but I can tell you what it doesn't mean. Um, and it's one of those things where I, I'm not in a position where I say I don't agree with you on that, Jeff, because I, I don't, I just don't, I, they, I just find it so weird that Jesus says, "Oh yeah, if you blaspheme the Son of Man, you can be forgiven," but not the Holy Spirit. It's just like that's, I find that very odd. Why is it okay blaspheme Jesus but not the Spirit? Um, so I, I think it's complicated. I, the the do thing, the one thing I do think is that often people say, "Yes, uh, rejecting Jesus is the unforgivable sin." That's why people to hell and I think that misses the fact that biblically everyone is on course to go to hell in, in that sense of rejecting God and you don't you don't get punished for not believing in Jesus you get punished for your sin believers are just forgiven of their sin because they believe in Jesus um, so it's like people say oh, it's unfair for someone you know on the other side of the world and I think I understand why we think that, but we were having this conversation last week, weren't we, Jamie? Um, I think the, the point is that it's not unfair because they're being punished rightly. It's just that um, you know, the escape clause is believing in Jesus. I, I will close down questions at that point. Um, but thank you, guys. Thank you, Jeff. Um, thank you for coming. Thank you. Thanks for cramping in, in the room.